Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to All the Wiser. I'm Kimmy Culp. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every inspiring interview you hear, we donate $2,000 to charities around the world. I believe in the power of storytelling to inspire us all to think differently about the world around us. So I have combed the country for some of the most jaw-dropping stories you have ever heard. People who have been to the brink and back, stories of survival against all odds, and whose lives have been changed in unthinkable ways. Today's interview is with Bob Woodruff. Bob was a newly married young lawyer when he packed up his bags and moved to China to teach law at a local university. He quickly found himself in the heart of the Tiananmen Square massacre. Through a friend, he was recruited to help translate and navigate the city for CBS News and found himself working side-by-side with Dan Rather. This unexpected turn of events led to his career as a journalist, a famous war correspondent, and the moment he would be given one of the biggest jobs in television news, the co-anchor of World News Tonight, a job he had spent decades preparing for. Just weeks after starting, Bob was covering the war in Iraq and was hit by a roadside bomb. He would spend the next 36 days in a coma fighting for his life. Today we dive right into what it means to cover war and death up close and stand face-to-face with your own mortality. For context, I mentioned Bob's incredible book, In an Instant, that he co-wrote with his incredible wife, Lee. I also mentioned David Weston, who was the president of ABC News at the time of Bob's accident. Here's today's interview with Bob Woodruff. All right, well, welcome, Bob. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Kimmy war correspondent. What does that mean? I think it's a term that's mysterious to some people, sexy to some people, if you can paint the picture of what it means to be a war correspondent. I think being a war correspondent is going to report on wars. In the world of television, we have to get visually what's happening in these in these parts of the world. You know, I think there's a lot of, and the sad thing I think about the modern world right now, there's a lot of reporting done about wars are from those sitting in inside a building somewhere far away. You have to be there to really do the real true reporting about what's happening there. But if you really want to see what's happening there with the real reaction and, and the participation and, the, and the, the kinds of people that are the troops, then you have to be there and know them. So being a war correspondent is, is just, it's being there. You know, people that that do it, there's this kind of this strange feeling of, of invulnerability. You know, I think people, when they're in places like that, you think about it, but it's almost when you come back and you go to sleep that night. It's like, wow, where, where, where are we? What is, what's up with these risks? I think sometimes the ones that end up doing it for a long period of time, they almost have the assumption they're not going to get hit. They're the ones that are going to, maybe they'll lose a finger or maybe they'll, you know, burn their hand or something. But there's, I don't think that many people think about what it's like to be shot and killed or blown up by an IED. You also 
by virtue of that job, witness death. And, you know, I know in the book you write about driving down the road and the bodies of Iraqi soldiers lined up. What is it like to, to look up at death so close? That's another one about journalism, right? And you go to some places that I think other people would be so shocked that they're even there. But we do. And I think once you see a lot of it, I think it just doesn't hit your your soul and your heart as deeply as it should. I think sometimes you feel like in order to do this job, I can't get all emotional about it. Um, I think it's the first couple of times you see it, um, you're, you're pretty shocked that you're you're kind of confused about what to think. I think the first the first one I saw was there in, after Tiananmen Square in China when I was a young, you know, twenty eight year old lawyer, and I suddenly see uh, at the university where I was teaching they brought four dead bodies back to the lobby of the school of the building where I taught, and they put these dead bodies out on top of these big blocks of ice, and part of their heads were crushed and they. And there was blood all over the place, and they did almost like a, like a funeral. Almost, it almost looked like a Christian funeral that they did for them in this country. And I saw that for the first time, and I didn't really know how to react. But I remember one of the first questions I said to the cameraman that was with me. I said, "How can you put up with this? You know, how could you see this?" He said, "What do you mean?" <laughs> and he was a man with a gigantic soul and a lot of heart. But it's almost, oh yeah, yeah, I know. It is really, it's pretty shocking, right? So I think there's a there's a time where you realize that. Uh, you know, that it's almost a normality to be it. But it, in some ways, it depends what happened. You know, to watch, especially when you see kids, that's the one you can't take. So I want to fast forward a bit in your career. Um, you're obviously an international correspondent covering stories all around the world. ABC loses Peter Jennings to lung cancer and that anchor chair becomes open. The, the biggest seat in the network without question. And you're named the co-anchor of World News Tonight. It's structured in a new way. So there'll be both an anchor and the second co-host being out reporting in the field. Um, from everything I know about you is a great thing because you're somebody who loves to be on the ground. First of all, how, what was that moment for, for you and, and your career finding out that, that you were going to take over the reins of World News Tonight? I think I had a good drink that night. <laughs> and uh, listen, there's no question about it. It was a celebration that this was, uh, was going to happen. Of all the people, you know, Peter Jennings, you know, of, of all the anchors, all of them I had gigantic respect for. You know, Tom Brokaw at NBC, where you were once upon a time. Dad Rather, who I'd lived with, I mean, you know, worked with uh, over in, in China. So I know all of them really a lot of respect, but Peter Jennings was the one that was established himself as the overseas reporter anchor again. So he's a guy that loved international topic topics and conflicts, and he's the guy that I really kind of wanted to emulate. And I think I wanted the one I wanted to be like Peter. So to take that job that Peter had been held for all those years uh, was so perfect for me. What I didn't want to do is I didn't really want to be. It's kind of almost like a catch-22, right? The, the, you know, Peter was the happiest when he was on the road and never on the road enough. And the world was changing quickly, just less and less possible to be on the road. And uh, in some ways, this, came, this chance came across. It was, it was a perfect combination that I can do what Peter had done and not be really trapped, trapped in, the, 
in the in the studio, but I, I couldn't get anything better. And how many weeks later, after getting the new position, um, did you get the assignment to go to Iraq? Well, Elizabeth and I started anchoring that show. I think it was mid December of two thousand five. And it officially, I believe, was announced sometime the very first of the year. And then I, I was I was blown up on the 29th of January. So it lasted probably about a month and a half. Go back before you were blown up. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong with getting blown up? <laughs> I want you... So... Professionally, massive, massive moment in your career. I imagine you're doing marketing photo shoots. It's the fanfare, a million emails, phone calls. This is big. You're the anchor of World News Tonight. That's your professional life. Where are you before getting on that plane and going to Iraq? What is the rest of your life? Listen, I had a, I have a blessed life. I, I, had a, I have a wife that we just celebrated our 30th anniversary, and she's gone through a lot. Many ways, I've got four wonderful kids, and uh, knock on woods, their their health is good, and, uh, and they're all doing well. So, but the life is the life was good. I mean, it was. It How was old wonderful. were the kids at that time? When I when I was hit. Yep. So my kids were the twins were uh, almost five, and then Mac was almost he was fourteen, and, the, and my other daughter was twelve. So 14, 12, 5, and 5. And you get on that plane. Do you remember the day you got on? I don't remember when I got on the plane, but we were... When you left the house. Yeah. I mean, when, on the way to Iraq? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you remember, you know... Because I don't remember getting on the plane, you know, leaving New York to head over to, to Iraq at the time. But I do remember preparing to go up to Iraq from, from Israel. So we headed up to Iraq. The one story that I did before we headed out with the, with the, uh, the first, with the, with the mitt that we, I was with, um, before we went out with them, we did one story about the, the well-known, famous ice cream shop right there in the middle of Baghdad, which was such a dangerous place that it's remarkable somebody goes out for ice cream. And talk to me about... Um the day of the explosion. What do you remember about that day and what were the circumstances? I remember talking to to the the troops that we were going out there with. We went out with both the Iraqis and the U.S. military. And I just remember talking about what we're going to see, you know, to go out to the villages to try to convince them that we're not such bad people after all. That was the mission. And convince them that the Iraqis that were there with their military were on our side, or at least they trust us and convince the people that this is not a bad thing you know, for, your, for your future. That was the mission. I remember talking about that. I remember when we were, on the, when we were about to get on the, the tanks that I said, I want to go with the Iraqis. I want to go on to see what that is like. I want to talk to them inside there. I don't want to go nest just with the U.S. military ones. So we did. And then we realized that the tank that we were in was the first in line of this, uh, I think there were eight of these vehicles driving down the roads. We are the ones in the very front. So we, I, remember, I remember that. And then I remember looking out with my cameraman, Doug and I were, Doug Boat and I were really doing a stand-up, popping our heads up with full body protection on a helmet. And it, So you're in the armored vehicle and then you're popping your heads we, out. We popped up through the holes at the top. So the three of us were up there, the, the Iraqi driver and us. 
And so we were doing the stand-up, and then uh, it was so loud. We had a, the audio was really difficult to even do it. So we went, and our great audio guy below, he, uh, he he set it up again, and then we stood up for the second time to do it. And what what I was told later on, but I don't remember it, is that I'm watching all of the palm trees on the side of the road. That apparently the the Iraqi driver told us. I think you guys should probably get down. I think this is where it gets a little bit more dangerous here for possible explosions. But it was three seconds later when that thing that thing blew. Do you remember anything about the explosion? Um, I do not remember. You know, I've, I've said this before, and I talked to doctors and scientists about this, that when something like that blasts, the first thing it hits you is the air, and that knocks you out. And then that's followed by the rocks and the metal. So I never saw anything. In fact, we had a camera that was attached to the vehicle on the front. That one di- died before you can see anything that exploded. Can you explain what happened now that you know? Well, that was uh, just off to the left. There was ID exploded, and, uh, and we were, I was knocked out instantly. I mean, I kind of saw my body floating underneath me. And I was just everything changed suddenly. It was about a minute later that I woke up and I was just asking, um, Vinnie Malhotra was my producer with me that was inside the tank, said, uh, am I alive? Because I just had this imagery. It's like, what the hell happened to me? And uh, blood was gushing out of my neck. The uh, translator was with us. Uh, he held his fingers over that and stopped that and really slowed down the bleeding of it until some of the military guys were able to get in and just and plug it up. Um, and I asked him if we're alive, and, and they said we're alive. And that's the last thing I remember. And Kimmy, I have to tell you something really interesting. I got a phone call by this amazing medic I had not heard from in thir- almost 13 years since this happened. And he called me up and he said, I've, been, I've kept away from you, but I got to tell you something. And I hadn't told this to anybody else. He said, you... You've, you've reported for the last 13 years. In fact, we had a piece on with, with uh, Martha Raddatz, had a piece about our 10th alive day, as we call it, the day that you're actually still alive. That's the celebration term they used in the military for those that should be dead, like me. So my 10th uh, alive day, you know, in uh, 2016, had a piece on this week. And, and on there, we had a video that was taken by a cell phone by one of the other medics had taken one, and he said, I, I saw that two years ago. And in that, you said you were unconscious from the time that you were knocked out, or at least while I was still in that tank. And the last thing you knew was 36 days later that you were unconscious in a coma for the whole time. He says, you were not. <sighs> I'm almost going to cry. He told me you were not completely awake. He was a medic. That was in that in that Baghdad hospital. He's a guy that helped 1,800 troops who've gone through this in those years that he was there in that hospital. And he had uh, he had grabbed my shoulders to pull me along on the cart that I was on. And underneath there was a bag, which is a body bag. So the, the assumption that I'm not going to be there long, so I need to have the bag ready to put my body in. He grabbed my shoulders and he and he looks down and he says to me, you know, how, how you doing? How you doing? And I opened my eyes. I said to him, thank you. 
He said he never heard that from any of his other 1,800 people. <laughs> he said you, said, you just thanked me. So finally, after these years, he went through, he came back and he'd suffered through a lot, but he wanted to finally call me. And this was literally, you know, I don't know he aired air this, but this was just a couple weeks ago. He called me. What did that conversation mean to you? It means a lot because he said, he said, I opened up and I spoke. I spoke while I was still, I was still alive then, you know? What, what is it? What is it? I mean, I, I just, I didn't, I, I didn't know what to say to him. I, I just, here's a guy that I, I don't think, I'm not sure I'd be alive if he was there. Now, he claims that, come on, I was just one of a, a million of them out there doing this. I said, yeah, but you were the one that had me there and you opened my eyes. I don't even know. And, and, I, and the, I, one of the most amazing things he told me is, and this is so true, is because he lived this with so many of those that were dying or that probably were going to die or possibly were going to die. If he ever had the chance to talk to them while he was there, the ones that he told to all these patients that were with him, he never told them, "Take, it. listen, man, when you get back, you're going to be fine. Or when you get back, you're going to be great. He would never say that to them. So he said to me what he said to everybody. Come on, man. You can wake up. When you get back there, you're going to be with your family. And that one's true. Almost no matter what happens, to those that have suffered, that have gone through this and their lives challenged, um, they will be there with their family. And I certainly witnessed that because the ne- next big life that I had, this dream of being the anchor and have this huge, amazing path within ABC, when everything changed, the very first, most important mission that was next was to see and be friends with all those other ones there in Bethesda Naval with their families around them. I don't know what I would do. I don't know what I would have been like if my family wasn't there with me. And that's what he told me right there in Baghdad when I was, what I thought I was in a coma, but he said I was still awake. Yeah, which you didn't remember or know until 13 yeah. years later. Kimmy, I don't know how I stopped from crying there, but it was almost, it was close. <laughs> in the book, you talk about a, a moment right after where you fell back into the tank and saw a white light? I know that when I woke up, two things. One, my my brother Jimmy, also known as Woody, was one of the first brothers that I that I spoke to. And my older brother Dave may have been there first, but so Jimmy that I looks at me and he and he says, How you doing? I said, I'm good. I said, but I kinda wanna go back where I just was. He says, What are you talking about? I said, Man, it was just it was so painless. It was so peaceful, you know. And it may have been him who I told this thing that I saw, you know, whiteness. What do you want to call it? Is it light? Is it just lack of anything else? You know, who knows? Um, I don't like to get all religious about it. I just can tell you exactly what I saw. You know, sadly, it wasn't, I didn't see Jesus or I didn't see, you know, Muhammad. I didn't see anybody, you know. I just, I just saw and felt peace. Because listen, you wake up like that and there's massive pain, you know, and massive fear. But I think of the first one when I did wake up, I was so happy to have those people around me, to have my, to talk to my brother. I think I, I got video that my brother, my brother number three, Mike, took a whole bunch of video with a little hand, with a little camera of, of that. And you can just see me smiling and having fun with my brothers, even though I knew that I could barely sleep because my head was constantly in pain. 
So in some ways, it was so peaceful when I was asleep. What does it feel like to have 36 days of your life that are just gone, that you don't have any recollection of? Oh, I don't, I don't, I, I, it's funny you ask that because I would tell people I, I missed the, uh, the Winter Olympics during those entire 36 days. So that's true. I did miss out on that. And this wasn't, you know, it was never the 36 days that the ones that were painful. It's the, it was the years afterwards, certainly the months after. And even still to this day, I mean, the, the pain of it is that, you know, your life changes so quickly. It's not always paired with all happiness, you know. So the 36 days were, they were fine. Like I said, very, very peaceful. But it's just the next, uh, the, the pain to go through what had to be done next. What was your first memory of waking up in Bethesda? <laughs> well, there's, a, there's a funny story. When I did wake up, is that apparently I said to my wife, I said, honey, where have you been? And just like that. <laughs> and uh, she's, who the f- are you talking about? You know, <laughs> keep my language, yeah, keep my language clean. Yeah. Said, what do you mean, where have I been? You know, because she really thought she was starting looking for a nursing home on the 35th day before I woke up. She literally was. She, started, she, she had no idea. She was told by everybody, we don't know if he's going to talk. We don't know if he's going to walk. We don't really know any of that. So prepare. So you wake up. Leah's there. She has been there every day in spite of your question. <laughs> Where have you been? I just, know, I just want to know which room she was in. I knew she was there, yeah. <laughs> um, what, were, what were those first few days like, the days and weeks that followed? I can't, you know, I really can't remember. I can't remember much of that. I had a mass, I think the first couple of days. The first two days, I didn't realize that half my skull had been removed by the doctors over in Balad. Those days before, you know, the, within, I think it was within two hours of when I was, when I was hit. Can you explain for those of um, listening who don't know what exactly happened to your body? What happened to your brain? When this thing blasted, I was, uh, I was hit, I, was, I shattered my scapula, which is the, like the triangular bone in your back. Um, and I was also shattered in my left, left jaw. Um, I was, uh, a couple of rocks went into the left part of my nose. Um, I also am blinded on the upper right corner of both of my eyes from that impact. So that's what knocked me out. And a portion of your brain was removed. So because when you're blasted by this, and this is for a lot of people hit by distant IEDs, is that they had invisible wounds. Uh, there's things that happen to your brain on the inside that you can't see until you open it up. But the bottom line is when the brain is hit with that kind of power, it starts to swell. And when the brain swells, it starts squishing against the skull from the inside. And if it does that, that you start to lose the cells, lose the cells and the, and the oxygen supply. So you have to let that breathe. So the doctors will do in that situation give you what's called a craniectomy, which they will remove part of your skull. So they took 16 centimeters off the left part of my skull and threw it away. And so for the next four months that my brain was able to, to expand and then settle back to what it used to be. And that's when they finally put it back on. So I was missing that skull when I woke up and I had no idea. So I had to wear a helmet really for the next four months because if I somehow leaned on that left part of my head, then I would squish my brain. So that's, but the first two days I didn't know. They had to really kind of tell, keep, fill me in about that later. 
There were no mirrors. I was not looking at anything. I was not feeling anything because I had a helmet on. So Lee talked about the first time she saw you um, in the book um, very graphically. And she said, your body looked perfectly intact. The right side of your face looked perfectly intact. And she said the left side of his face looked like a monster. It looked like a Frankenstein experiment. His brain was swollen out of his head like a rugby ball. The first time you decided to look in the mirror, you guys decided to look in it together, both of you looking back at the reflection. What did you see looking at yourself, and what did you see looking at her? I think with her, I, I saw beauty, but I, in terms of mine, it certainly wasn't. I mean, I, I, I can't recall what my reaction was at that time. I wish I did. You said during that initial time that nights were very difficult for you. What was it about the nights that were particularly hard? I didn't sleep much. I mean, I was up most of the night. I think that's the time when you just start to think. You know, during the day, you're getting all your therapy. You're getting the doctors coming in. You're taking all the tests. They're, you know, putting some new drugs in your, your blood and giving you new pills. And then at night, you just, you sit there and in the room, there's a, so I had to just think. I just thought about everything. Imagine the thoughts about that. What were the dark corners you went to? Since I have gotten to know so many of them going through similar things, I think we all agree on a couple of things. One is when you wake up, you're ecstatic. You're so happy to be alive. And you're surrounded by people. And we ultimately started a foundation because of the very big problem that I'll tell you right now. Is that once that miracle of survival kind of starts to sweep away, you realize that your life is going to be completely different. And you have to make this transition, not only from what you did to something brand new, but you have to leave that hospital where you're getting this kind of treatment. And you have to go to the place where your, your friends, your family, and everyone else used to know. Um, you have to, that's your life. And then you got this gigantic planet. Right? you got this gigantic world that you have to find your, your spot in, you know, your direction in. And that's a shocking change. And I think that's the blackness. I think the blackness that everybody that's gone through this go through, goes through. You know, now you've got to f- figure out what you're going to be and what you're going to do. That's the black moments. And the ones when you realize with me is I just could not talk the way I used to. You know, I'd lost my poetry. You know, I lost my vocabulary. I had almost a uh, photographic memory. I could memorize things fine. I would have been a damn good actor. <laughs> I should have. I wouldn't have got shot, uh, blown up. But I mean, the, the shock of realizing you're not exactly the same we were. And you ask any wounded veteran that's gone through the same IED explosions, they'll tell you exactly that. And when you woke up, you couldn't even remember your, your kids' names. Is that right? Yeah. I couldn't. I could, apparently, I couldn't. I, I, my brothers were all called Dave, my older brother. I couldn't remember Mike and Jim. Um, I didn't realize that I had two twin girls. I couldn't remember the name of any state in the United States or almost any country in the world. I could not remember the name of the presidents. So I had to relearn the the words again. And, you know, it's, uh, it's pretty shocking. What role did humor play in your healing? (sighs) What's better than humor? (laughs) If If you could hear some jokes. I think at the beginning I didn't really understand what the joke was when it was told to me. That was the that was the, the sad part. Humor is fantastic. Music is miraculous. 
and music is miraculous. Did spirituality play a role in your recovery? I, I think it did. You know, I think I did. I realized that I mean, one of the one of the reasons of religion is, I think, to give you comfort about where you're going to spend most of your your existence. And I think I had a realization that this is exactly what's out there. I mean, you can have all sorts of thoughts about what's written in the various books, um, but uh, and it's got details in it that some either believe or don't believe. But if you really think about it, whoever the prophets may be, you know that what they're really trying to tell you is that it's going to be nice when you go. And given the fact that I gave my brother a good idea of what it's like, while it's fresh in my memory, that I really don't have the same fear of dying that I, that I did before. But I do know that when that brain stops functioning, it's, it's a pretty damn nice place to be. What was the first moment when you felt hope or you sensed that everything was going to be okay? I think yesterday. <laughs> I mean, I don't think there's a moment in the last, uh, you know, 12 plus years that, that I realized that everything is perfect again. I mean, at first it never was perfect, but I, I think I realized when, uh, uh, that I was able to continue to report, which was my dream. The, flows all the way back to, you know, 1991 when I got into journalism, is that I really could do it. You know, I had lost so much in terms of my writing skills, but I certainly knew how to tell the stories. What did it feel like the first day back? It was wonderful. It's almost like another one of those ecstatic kind of uh, uh, moments of, of happiness to go back and see all your friends. There's nothing better than friends, you know, just to have a chance that they will, they still like you and you still have a function and you really, uh, you have such good people that the one, the ones that I think they truly are your friends are the ones that stick with you when you go through suffering. And so I, I, those I still have. And I think when I came back and I realized I still do have them in a place that I, you know, lived through in, in wonderful times, you know, they were back. Did you um, want to go back to the anchor desk? Did you think that was within reach? I, even ABC was really looking at that possibility of me returning it somehow. They had to kind of test and see if I could really do it. What I got was aphasia. To me, in terms of the explosions, a lot of times what, you're, what the impact on your, on your brain, it depends to a large degree on which part of the head it hit. You know, if you got hit in the front, you can be suffering from a lot of depression and, and other issues. The right, the left, the bottom, whatever it may be. But on the left side is where the language is. And anchoring requires a huge vocabulary with remarkable memorization of wording. And that we realized fairly early on. And that's not the one that was going to be the most part of me. Was that a loss you had to grieve? I had to grieve, yeah. I think I did. I did do it. I think, it. I think it unleashed a lot of anger. You know, I just, I was furious that it wasn't going to be the case. I mean, of all the times to do it, it would be a great thing if this had happened right before my retirement. It would have been a lot better than right when I started. So, yeah, I, mean, I definitely had a lot of anger and frustration at it. Have you come to peace with that? Yeah, I'm totally with peace, peace with it now. What was the hardest thing to lose? You know, I don't, the worst thing, the worst loss that I had? Yeah. I don't think I lost the best part of life. I mean, I, I still have love with my, 
my, my family, my kids, my wife, my friends, my brothers, my cousins. I think I, I did not lose that. You know, I think I lost a part of this dream that I had. And I think that's the one that was difficult when I realized that I'm not going to be doing that exact job. You know, I think there's always, I kind of joke a little bit too that, um, you know, the only good thing that happened about getting blown up with me was to be able to start a, uh, a foundation that was the most fulfilling thing I've ever done in my life. Have, but I think without question, I think the biggest loss was um, I could not only fill, I could not only pursue my dream, but I also didn't give my wife the gift to follow the dream that she shared with me as well to get us in life. You know, she, you know, she's gone through. I remember I've told people too that I think what would be 8,000 times worse in my pain and frustration and anger about this was that I was as really the, the team leader over there if the other ones with me were badly wounded than me. It's, in some ways, it was a kind of a strange blessing to say that I was least hit the worst. What has been the greatest thing you've gained as a result of this? I think one is I think I've got, uh, I've found something to do in life that is uh, remarkably fulfilling. As I said to you before, is that when we woke up, we saw the families around those others on that third floor, which is the worst wounded, those that are still unconscious in comas, you know, largely Marines, and were same, they were the same as me in every way. But my, my wife, my brothers were starting to witness that a couple of them were not getting the same kind of support that we were. They did not have their families there because they had to keep their jobs. They couldn't afford to fly there to D.C. And at that time, the, the, the government was not supporting them for long periods of time to do that. You know, they could not guarantee income and, and, a, and a company wouldn't fire them if they kept leaving and just to go spend time with their, their loved one there who was suffering. And so we realized that, oh, my God, that is just wrong. And we don't want to beg the government to do this, but we knew that every American in that country would do everything they can to, especially those that are badly wounded, to do something to make sure they give a life that I was getting and my family was getting. So we realized that uh, we have this we have this blessing that we needed to, to try to give others. And so that was the chance that my brother and my wife and me, largely them, even before I woke up, they said, we want to do something. We never thought it would be something gigantic, but we knew just, we could, let's give a little contribution to this. And so we did. And I just, uh, you know, it's been amazing. It is gigantic. You raised $5 million last night. Yeah, we've raised, more than, we've raised more than $60 million since we started this back in 2007. What do you still struggle with today from the traumatic brain injury? You know, I have, I have, uh, I think, you know, my vocabulary has not come back fully. I mean, I still have sometimes, you know, difficult to remember words. You know, the, what, what happened, the classic aphasia is you just, you lost some of the synonyms that you had. Right when I, I woke up, I couldn't even make a lot of the points I wanted to make because I didn't have any synonyms of words. I, had, I couldn't remember a single word to describe exactly what I wanted to communicate. That's all changed completely. I mean, now I... I can express everything. I, I never lost my ability to think. I never lost the ability to know what's going on and, and how to tell the story, just that how I were able to tell the story because I did not have the words. And those are almost 90% come back, but there's still ones I can't remember. Names are really difficult, very difficult because names don't have a synonym. 
If you don't know that one, you can't express who that person is. Yeah. So that one's really frustrating. That's another reason why I can't really, I, I don't think, I could, I could not be a, 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 a reporter covering politics. Sometimes I couldn't remember the name of the, the senator I'm supposed to be talking about. <laughs> it would take me a few seconds to figure, figure out, remember what it was. Isn't the greatest, not the greatest gig in the world right now, reporting yeah, politics. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> You've been spared, my I was friend. Joking, I was losing all these words. It's, it's, uh, I liked hanging out with people at least my age, you know, that have lost their words too. <laughs> what did you come to understand about yourself as a result of the accident? I think if you ask my wife, she'll see that I'm, I'm, I, I seem different than I was before. I'm sure she would. But certainly not, in, not that she loves me less. I think that there's, I, I, there's a lot of memories, things I, things I can't remember. It's amazing I get back to my close friends and they say, you remember back there in you know, 1993, we went to that place and saw this thing? And I said, I have no idea we went there. So there's these things I've forgotten about. How did it change your role as a father, your relationship with your kids before the accident and after? I think that my kids would say that maybe it's a little bit better most of the time and then just little moments here and there probably. I think when you I think when you you when you realize that you're so lucky to be around your kids, you just can't get enough of cuddling them. Here's one I can tell you that and this one is actually was a story that my my wife Lee has has told many times is that within the couple months after I came back from the hospital and I still had, still had the helmet on my head and my skull was missing from my head and scars were all over the place. And, uh, you know, rocks were still embedded in the size, side of my face. And my, one of my little twin girls, Nora, apparently came up to Lee and she said, Mom, look at Dad's, look at Dad's face. It's really disgusting with all those things dug into his face. And she goes, don't worry, sweetie. Those are popping out one at a time. Don't worry about it. She said, my mom, is, his back is so scarred, and I don't think that's ever going to come back to normal. And uh, she says, don't worry, sweetie. That's going to come back. Believe it or not, he'll be able to move his arm fine. Everything's going to be fine. And she said, but you know, Mom, I have to tell you something. I think Daddy loves me more now than he did before. So maybe we have kind of a gratitude that can change when something like this happens. You know, this, you, know, you, you can't remember. I think people have a, they don't really see what their lives are until some, some, sometime they see something worse. But I think I do have a better way of looking at life that way. So shortly after the accident, David Weston was quoted as saying, no story is worth dying for. In retrospect, he said, what I should have said is, let's be careful, let's use judgment, let's not be rash. Because if no story is truly worth dying for, I should have kept Bob back in New York. Do you believe that there are stories worth dying for? I think, I think maybe sometime. I mean, I think that, uh, I don't think everybody thinks about dying for them. The problem is all these, if you made it, if you knew that you're going to die, yes, of course, there's no story worth covering. That's suicide. So nobody knows they're going to die. I think there's levels of risk. And I think some people, I think you better not go do it if you really don't have a love of it. You know, because then it's just too unending stress. You won't be able to write. You can't think straight. But there's so many stories, as I deeply believe, is you have to go there to really report about it. We can't report about the wars 
if we don't go there, so someone's got to go. I mean, wars impact the lives of people all over the world. And we know that if you don't have journalists, I hate to tell the president this, if you don't have, if you don't have journalists out there to tell the story, you know, I've been to the countries where there is no journalism and you can tell the impact on the people to not have it. So yes, I think some things are metaphorically required to do, to take the risks for it in order to, to make the world better. Was there an unexpected gift in all of this? I think, I think there's, I, I like to believe that. I think there was a gift. I have close friends that some have been completely burnt from, from the bombs of the war, lost their limbs because of the war. I've got friends that were blinded because of the wars. And I've also met a million that have saved lives because of the war. So I became a, a collection of friends and, and exposure to that that I don't think I would have had before. And I think it's probably a much more fulfilling thing in life. I mean, I think maybe, hopefully, I'd like to say that when I, when I die, maybe I'll get a better, better path because I had a chance to do at least something good. Great. So I'm going to do a little rapid fire here before we wrap it up. What matters most is? What matters most is those people that you're with. Make it, make sure it's uh, out of true love. My favorite piece of advice is? My advice, my advice is kind of similar to the first question, is to make sure that those around you are still there by your side. And that means there's a lot you got to do to make sure they're next to you. You can't just beg for it and you can't just assume it. So I think that's probably the, the most important. You know, I think once you got the people with you, then you, then you don't really need much else. My favorite hour of the day is? Nine o'clock. Why? Because I slept in and I'm rested <laughs> and the day is just starting. <laughs> I can't stand the really early hours, and I, I'm getting tired on the late hours. But In 10 years, I hope to be? Doing something that I deeply love and feel that I'm doing well. So as I shared, All the Wiser is a one-for-one one podcast, and today we're going to be donating to a cause that you believe in. I have a hunch. I know what it's going to be. <laughs> But if you can tell us what charity and why you love it. Is it okay? Is it too self-serving to just say the one that we started with the, called the Bob Woodruff Foundation? <laughs> Does Absolutely that count? Absolutely <laughs> not, my friend. How about it? I cannot it? say that? You can. <laughs> All right, then I say that one. Yeah. I think it's been pretty good. I think it's, uh, it's pretty pure. Thank you, Bob Woodruff. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Kimmy. You're the best. As you can tell in the interview, Bob and his wife, Lee, are incredible people. They looked around in the hospital during his recovery and realized they wanted every service member to have the same quality of care. So they started a foundation and they're not messing around. Their intention is to create healthy, positive futures for all service members, vets, and their families. They have raised $57 million and reached more than 2.5 million vets and families. To learn more about the Bob Woodruff Foundation, check them out at thebobwoodrufffoundation.org and follow their hashtag, hashtag stand for heroes. So I want to take a moment to thank you, our listeners. 
You guys have been awesome. You are showing up in the coolest of ways, and we are so, so grateful. Thanks again, guys. You really have been awesome and can't wait to share more stories with you. Have a great day. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.